Welcome to the Future of Internal Communication podcast. I'm Jen Sproul, CEO of the Institute of Internal Communication. Our organisations face an onslaught of challenges across the social, economic, political and environmental spectrum. The systems we've used to support 21st century ways of life are weakening. The way we work requires dramatic transformation in response to these challenges. Internal communication is a crucial function that helps organisations achieve lasting change. This podcast explores the intersection between internal communication and the future of work. Every conversation is curated to help internal communicators better understand the risks and leverage opportunity. We really hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to the next edition of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. And today is a special occasion because it's the first time that we have a guest coming back to join us. We have Bill Quirk, the godfather of internal communication, to join us again. Bill has huge amounts of experience working with lots of leading organisations across the world, doing a number of things, but mostly about helping leaders be better and more effective communicators helping people through change and helping change managers connect people with the change that organizations need to make and working for internal with internal communicators to help them be more influential. Bill has spoken in lots of different situations and lots of different places over the world and has produced two books, one making the connection about how you use communication to turn strategy into action and secondly communicating corporate change. And both those books are an important part of the IOIC's professional education and have formed the basis for many careers, including my own. I'm delighted I've been able to work with Bill for what's nearly 23 years now on and off. Bill, welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Doc. That's very kind after <laughs> 23 years of working together. Nice to welcome back, actually, to test some of those uh, you know, wild generalizations we made last time and predictions we made. Good, you know, Nice to come back and actually test how things actually work out. <laughs> Well, let's start by doing that then, Bill. So I think it is nearly two years since you uh, joined us on the podcast. You were in on the uh, very early stages of it. A lot's happened, I guess, in that period. So from your perspective, what changes have you seen in the last two years or so that have had most impact on both internal communication and internal communicators? Well, remember that uh, when we last spoke, we were you know, coming out of the pandemic, we were, we were speculating a lot about hybrid working how things are going to turn out. I think, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, three main areas, I would say, of, of things that have had an impact. Certainly things are economically tighter. We're, uh, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about the cost of living crisis, and I think that that's driven a number of wedges, often between the same colleagues within the same organisation, but in different sectors and doing different jobs. So I think it's economically tighter. Two, I think the whole labour environment has changed dramatically. I know you're too young, but I remember the 70s when the, when the strikes were happening. And we, as far as I can tell, we had fewer strikes happening than we've got now. And I, you know, whenever I look at the, the new picket lines with their great slogans and their lovely signs, there's a lot of communication work gone into that. And it must mean that for colleagues inside those organisations, trying to represent both the, the employee voice and represent the case of the, the management, that must be a real tension. It must be a real pull. And I think that's a sign of things to come. Uh, so I think the third bit is that the nature of work is it, that debate's still going on. 
We were looking forward to more hybrid working a couple of years ago. Uh, my prediction then was that the Glaswegian finance director would hit back. And I think that's happening. I think we've had the, the what's been called the quiet quitting in, in the States. We've had the loud layoffs. So we, we've had a shift. Sorry, but I, I say from the perspective of communicators then, what are some of the things that those changes mean for them and how they approach their work? I think that they're going to have to look at a, a broader range of different viewpoints have to reconcile those. I think they're going to have to have a, a better handle on their internal audiences because the danger we're facing is that we're not just looking at segmentation, we're looking at polarization of different views and different attitudes. And I, I think the third part is working with leaders to get them to actually uh, make their case, articulate their thinking, and think through how is this going to view from the other point of view. You know, we looked at P&O ferries over the you know, last year or so, and that must have been the most extraordinary demand for communicators who were actually uh, communicating something which, from the outside, uh, looked like not the best w- work practice, but may have meant economic sense for the owners of, uh, you know, of that line. So I think we're going to see more tension a great demand for communicators to bridge the gap between one viewpoint at the uh, at the coalface and the other in the boardroom and trying to reconcile those different values and different priorities. And that's going to cause, uh, require a fair amount of courage and, and stepping up. Leading on from what you've said, it would be good to get your views on some of the key issues that have arisen in the podcast we've had since we last spoke. And there are a number of them, but one of them, as you mentioned, is about leadership and line manager communication. Uh, that's been a regular theme. And just as you say, how do we equip line managers and leaders to engage with people, make connections and bring them on board, I guess, with lots of different changes? So what do you see looking ahead now in the future, um, next few years? What do you see as some of the key communication roles that leaders and line managers are going to be expected to do? And, and secondly, how best can communicators support them in doing it? Well, let, let's take leaders first. You know, I've always felt slightly sorry for leaders who feel that they have to be charismatic and, you know, fill stadiums when we know that the majority of leaders are actually functional introverts who are promoted for being technically good, not good at communication. And I think the challenge uh, we've had in coaching with leaders is to find out how communicators can identify what's the spark that works for each individual. There's no one size fits all. You you cannot get an R and D introverted scientist to you know come on like Richard Branson. So I think that's identifying what is that spark, what is it that that's appealing, what is the source of their you know humanity and their engagement. That's been the case. I think it's about to shift again, because what leaders are expected to be, I think, keeps increasing. So that the companies are expected to have viewpoints on almost everything, the values they hold, you know, the, their diversity and inclusion, their supply chain, whether their values are right. I think the complexity of, we used to say about any organization that puts itself on a pedestal and claims to be something it may not be, will have a fall, uh, which will be fairly damaging for them. I think that's much more likely now. Because the number of, uh, of areas in which you can be suddenly highlighted uh, as not having complied, as not even having thought it through, is increasing. The risks are higher to reputation. And I think communicators, therefore, have to work with leaders to realize they're not simply uh, having to do a PowerPoint presentation that's vaguely interesting. They're having to think through both how they come across, what their attitudes are, and what their beliefs are. 
an example, I read a, a piece this morning of Jennifer Aniston talking about Friends and saying that there's a whole new generation of young viewers who'd be fairly horrified by some of its attitudes. And that's true for leaders. All of us, we have attitudes which may well be outdated, which may well be unhelpful, which may well be offensive. So we're not simply working with leaders to uh, get them to perform well. We get them to think through the messages, how they come across, and what are the likely impacts on the, the, the more diverse range of audiences they have. So I think that's leaders. I think that's I think that's challenging. I think that that job keeps getting more complicated. For line managers, I think the job for line managers has, has often been the same. One, just put time into communicating. Make sure that you're making the connection between what are we currently doing and what's your role in it and what that means for you. I think the thing that has shifted is the expectation that people will be listened to. So it is not enough to do you know, a, a, an articulate briefing and then ask at the end of there any questions. Because what people do want and expect is dialogue, which is not simply to have their views solicited, but to be listened to. And that requires, I think, a different range of skills. Traditionally, when, in training line managers, it's been one of presentation, which is you know, stand on your feet, be able to, to explain what things are, put a bit of life into it. And the real shift, I think, is going to be the listening part. And the challenge for listening, and we may want to come back to this, is that we're now listening not just for the task, you know, what ideas have you got to make this team work more effectively, but the relationship, which is, I mean, if, what's really striking in the last two years is the far increased emphasis on mental health, not just, you know, are people physically well and showing up in the workplace, but how are they? And that's even truer for people working at home alone out of community. So I think the role for line managers can be much more towards coaching, listening, eliciting views from people, even when they you know, may not be uh, you know, particularly keen to talk. So I think, again, that role has shifted, and it's shifted because of the nature, the nature of work, the nature of relationship between you know, employees and those employing them, and where they're working. That means the line manager as much is, is not... You know, we've gone a long way from command and control, but now I think there's going to be a greater shift on nurturing as part of managing. I think I think you'll raise some really interesting points, Bill. I'm I'm kind of curious about what you say by comparison with how I perceive the current landscape, because it seems to me that at the time of recording, there's an ongoing friction between organisations wanting to bring their staff back into the workplace under one roof and reluctant employees who don't want to relinquish the freedom that working from home and flexible working has afforded them. And one of the observations that I find myself reflecting on is, is people who report coming back into the office they're asked to come back into the office and then when they arrive in the office, they're either expected to do exactly what they were doing when they were working from home. So they've spent time and money to get to an office to do exactly what they were doing when they were working from home. Or when they form huddles with their colleagues that they've not seen for a long time, it's not too long before they get a tap on the shoulder and somebody asks them what they're actually doing. So there's a whole bunch of really complex stuff in here about how organizations 
set about rebuilding the community vibe that underpins a healthy operating culture and actually whose responsibility that is because I'd say it's everybody's responsibility but if you're getting paid at management grade or leadership grade it is 100% on you it is more important now for you to be nurturing and honing that feeling that experience that you want people to have when they come through the doors to the office than it is to be managing any kind of spreadsheet but I just wonder what your reflections are on that because I think this you said something earlier about the listening role as well I think this whole build rebuilding a sense of community and rebuilding environments where people feel included and respected and there's a mutually reciprocal vibe going on. What are your thoughts? What advice do you have for internal communicators seeking to underpin that thing? I mean, a huge question, I know. <laughs> it's a great point because it's been really, it has been quite extraordinary, the speed at which there's an attempt to get back to business as usual as it was before the pandemic. And in fact, if we've learned anything from hybrid working is that it's possible and it eases, it changes a lot of stress as you go day to day. So when we've had some form of hybrid working for years, so we've had hot desking. So hot desking driven by organizations wanting to reduce their rents. So the idea about some people have to be at home to save us having to have more rental capacity has been going for years. The big shift the pandemic drew is when people said, no, we would like to do more of this. We would like to work from home. Companies tend to say it wasn't possible. It's just too difficult. What the pandemic did was force companies to do it and to demonstrate it could be done. So the idea about saying, well, let's just revert to where we were, I think is for the birds. Because you've got to say, well, hang on, this is possible. It is possible to have have some degree of working from home and working for the office or wherever you're you know. A couple of things I discovered that uh, the um, law of un unintended consequences. The fun you used to have, you know, when you went to work to see your mates, when you went out for a drink afterwards, when you had you know, a, a banter in a team meeting, that was all seen as really a personal relationship thing. You all got on with each other. And um, the company was interested in the task, but there's all some degree of relationship, you know, how we're getting on, how's the team working. I think you're right. It used to be that the oiling the wheels of the relationship was seen as a personal thing. And now companies, it's in their interest to be pouring the oil on themselves. It's in their interest to foster the relationship. It's in their relationship to do the nurturing because there is an appetite and a need for it. So I think it's strange to have a leadership that would say, crack on with the work. You know, you've been idle enough. Now we need to get on with it. They do need to take that seriously. Uh, and the, the big issue we've seen, you look in any um, any leader, they're balancing task and relationship. They're, you know, they, there's my Glaswegian caricature who's very much just do it. Don't waste your time uh, chatting to each other. You know, get on with the job. And there's equally the Californian HR manager who's saying let's hold hands and form a circle. You've got to balance those out. But I think the balance has shifted towards leaders taking a greater responsibility for relationship because, frankly, they can't afford to be seen as only focusing on task, only trying to squeeze work out of people because people would see have a much greater uh, need for the relationship side and community side 
in their work. I think, I mean, God, it is a fascinating topic because actually it was the pandemic, wasn't it, that really accentuated the reality that the social element of work is the glue that holds everything together. So when we had, I can't remember who it was, I'm sure it was JP Morgan, chief exec, was talking about, you know, water cooler moments and bringing people back in because of all these bits and bobs that were missing. There was this widespread realisation that there are intangible aspects of work that are deeply, deeply social. We've got some fascinating fledgling research in the field of neuroscience and psychology, absolutely underscoring that how people learn, how people collaborate, how people share information is deeply social in nature. But it seems as if when it comes to curating the environments that allow those social relationships to thrive, it seems as if there's like a mental block. And so we'll focus on anything apart from that. It doesn't seem as though, because it's not as rudimentary as step one, two, three in a procedure, it's more complex than that. It's more nuanced and clearly we're we're catering now to highly customised audiences, it just strikes me that the approach is out of kilter with what's actually required. I think with Twitter and Elon Musk, you've seen the absolute caricature of this, which is, you know, we only want people who are absolutely dedicated hearts and minds and no one else need to apply. I think that shows an extraordinary naivety. I think there's a discomfort about, about issues around community and relationship. You say catering, my Glaswegian director would say pandering. Yeah. So the idea about it's a soft area and those who share the same values, I think, see it as fairly obvious. Those who don't, the whole debate about return to the office has been about, okay, you've been idle enough, now get back where we can see you. Go back to your point, Kat, about how you learn. I learned by going out with my boss and observing him and very much as an apprentice that I would pick up what he was doing uh, none of which I think he knew he was doing. This was all you know, the, the implicit knowledge. No one wrote it down. No one had a process for it. You couldn't read a manual on it. You could watch it and pick it up. We say that values are not taught. They are caught. And so being with people who share the values of the organization, being able to observe you know, masters of the craft and be able to steal some ideas from them, I think that's fundamental to work. And that's what gets squeezed out. It's strange. There was a, a great quote about um, one of the great movie moguls in the 30s who was taken into the writer's block to watch all these famous writers like Scott Fitzgerald writing and typing. And occasionally a couple of them would stop and stare at the wall ruminatively, thoughtfully and creatively. And he asked, what are they doing? And he said, oh, well, they're, they're just thinking. So well, we'll only pay them for the time they're typing. And I think that, you know, that's naturally that prevails, which is, you know, we believe that you need to nurture people and create community. And most organizations function on goodwill. One of the great things we learned was about collaboration. Most organizations want their processes to work together seamlessly. And that means colleagues working with each other in trust. And the way you build trust is through familiarity. So you know, familiarity creates trust. Trust creates collaboration. 
So when you're talking to the Glaswegian director who wants the process to run, you think these people need to know each other, have contact with each other, hang out together. That's how you build processes between people. So, Kat, I think the lesson I've learned is even when you're talking about touchy-feely stuff, always draw a diagram with arrows running left to right. Because <laughs> it looks that it's the process. Do not use pictures of clouds or kittens. Okay, and this is this is specifically with our with our Glaswegian director in mind. Is it? He likes an arrow, does he? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, if you've got an arrow running left to right, or if you've got scientists, the arrows should run from bottom left to top right of the diagram. Bill, just before we finish on the leaders, I'm going to pass over to, to Jen in a second. But as you're speaking, I'm thinking, well, from a leader's point of view, you're asking quite a lot, really. You're saying you've got to be vulnerable, you've got to be open, you've got to listen, you've got to be supportive, you've got to be clear. But at the same time, you can't say too much because your views may not be in tune with your team. So it's getting quite a difficult task, I think, that communicators may be asking. I guess before, they would give good content and, and good and good skills. So now, in your experience, when you're training leaders, what are some of the core skills that communicators need to impart to leaders so that they can do all the things we've been talking about? Talking a lot about leaders and everything that we've talked about from them and having to nurture be charismatic, to be authentic, to manage all these things. It's becoming, leadership in itself is becoming a complex job. And therefore the skills that are needed are becoming complex. So how as internal communicators or as leaders, should we be thinking about the skills that they need or the skills that we need to enable them to be effective communicators? Yeah, I think I think it is more complex also because there's all different kinds of leadership. So, you know, we, we, we all think in terms of hierarchical leadership, but it's not, there's, there's functional leadership. If, if you're the global finance director, God bless him, you are responsible for people around the world. If you're a thought leader, where you are contributing intellectually, if you are you know, leading on a campaign or a value. So there, there are different kinds of leadership. And some organizations would say almost everyone has a responsibility to lead in some way. And we said this before, which is the origin of the word leader is, comes from the Anglo-Saxon, he who shows the way. And the uh, manager comes from the French, he who holds the horses. So it's not a thing about, you know, there, there are different roles, but they're obviously a bit combined. If you go back to wh- what do you need? I think the real challenge of communicators is it used to be coaching. Like, so you would t- you'd say, what are you trying to say? How can we put this across? Then you say, well, let's think about the audiences. Uh, there are different kinds of people we're speaking to. They, they'll respond to this differently. You be careful that you don't go, you know, fully too direct on this point. Draw, you know, paint the picture of the change we're trying to make. I think the next shift is regard is the feedback loop. The feedback loop used to be how has this gone down. I think the, the you know oh it's gone down pretty well. They liked it. I think that will shift. Because I think the whole point of you know communication isn't communication until you get feedback from it. I think the whole point about, about feedback, well, listen, here's how we went down in different places amongst different people with different attitudes. And I think there'll be one that's sensitizing, and that'll be quite tough. Because if you're going back to someone saying, yeah, hang on, they didn't like it for this reason, that's quite a challenging thing to do especially when the person you're saying to it has the power, it's more senior to you and isn't liking what you're saying and may think you're, this, you're being a bit oversensitive here. 
I think that will change. I think you you will have to have much more sensitivity as a communicator to audiences. And I remember that um, many years ago when Body Shop got started, it had 20-somethings in the stores, you know, selling how to extend your life by rubbing ointments in, and you, you had 50-something men in the warehouse and the distribution. So they had very different groups of people with very different attitudes that they had to harmonize and keep together. I think that will have shifted even more because you've got your different audiences with stronger views, so who, who feel that they should have a right to be heard, who want to talk about a wider range of things, who if they don't, we you know, we've, we've um, after the Edelman barometer research, we knew that employees were the most influential advocates, and that's good news and bad news, because you get, you're going to get some employees who, if they are not listened to, if they are not heard, if they are discounted, they will shift from being employee advocates to being whistleblowers. And you, you've seen examples of that over the last year or so, which is anyone with a camera, anyone with a phone, is can track. Citizen journalism can turn into employee whistleblowing very easily. So I think talking to leaders about, about the risk of, you know, we're operating on a broader range. There's a broader range of risks there's a, a broader a range of reputational damage that's possible. And there's a broader range of attitudes and audiences. So being an expert in that, keeping a finger on all those pulses, and then being able to feed that back to leaders in such a way that they can adjust, I think that's going to be an increasing challenge. Thanks, Bill. Uh, shifting gears slightly, so we've talked so much around you know relationships, human, leadership, community, nurturing. I'm going to flip it the other way now and go right back to that kind of, I guess, broadcast part of our job. But also, actually, since we last spoke, obviously, the rise of technology, with specifically with AI, has been at a rate of pace that we didn't expect, and that pace is continuing to build. And I think it also picks out on some of the themes that you've already spoken. We've talked a lot about reputation management. Now, AI can be seen as a threat to that with the increase of misinformation, disinformation. There's a lot of ethical morality. We've talked about leaders being humans and authentic. Well, can we train an API or a bot to be the voice and the tone of our leaders? If you go back a few decades, which I remember when I first started working, the internet wasn't a thing. So the thought of daily news and consumption and volume of that amount was unfathomable. Now we're in a whole new space. And I've been out doing a roadshow with members over the, over the last few months, and AI has come up as a really big topic. And there's people on different sides of it. There's some people that see it as a really opportunity for the practice of internal communicators because we can automate, we can optimize, we can have more time. There's some people that see it as a threat to our jobs and to how people are being brought in. And then there's the third aspect around there's some people that are concerned about the ethical morality of what of the deployment of AI for the creation of content when we know that human is so important and what could that do to that? So I guess I just wanted to get, you know, your thoughts on what do you think about the impact, I guess, specifically of chat GPT? You know, I would like them to rebrand the name because I really struggle to say it every time. And what that will have on internal communication and internal communicators. Do you see it as an opportunity or do you think it has any level of threat for us as a professional community? 
But first of all, go back to a comment on the technology, because you know we've seen new technology come in t- there constantly into the field of internal communication. And what it's done for us is that two things have happened. One, everyone gets excited that there is something new, and they focus on it. And they tend to focus on it to the exclusion of all the other good things they, they should also be doing. But what it has done consistently is cut thinking time. It has cut response time. It has put the focus on production, fast production, at the cost of thinking and planning. So I think that's, with AI, that's going to get worse, not better. I quite like AI. Look, it's going to be used badly. It's going to be used uh, inauthentically to say, quote, authentic things. There was a fantastic example recently of a sympathy letter to high school, I think after a shooting, where the, the letter of sympathy was written by AI and had said all the right things. So look, whenever I read a, a newspaper article which is condemning some organization, you get to the bottom of the article and there's a statement from the organization, which I stop reading halfway through because I've read them so often and I've written enough of them. And they always follow the same formula, which is you apologize, you say there's been a review, say it could never happen again, and so your heart goes out to the people. And all that formulaic stuff could be happily outsourced through an AI. If we're going to have formulaic material, we might as well have it done. I saw it described recently as the hyper-efficient content production. And you think, okay, well, if we can do that without thought, let's have the AI do it. When I get out of the train station, and the train's late, an announcement comes on apologizing for the lateness. Now, no one's apologizing. It is a recording. I think it's quite funny. There's a machine telling me how sorry it is. I think we'll have the same with AI, but I think that authenticity will still be a, a hallmark. I think if you look at, I think the last time we did research, 70% of the workload of an internal communication department is low-value activity. You know, if you've ever written the 17th draft of a statement that now has to be recirculated to the board again, which you know is going to come back from five different directions with lots of amendments, I would happily outsource all that. So I'd be, you know, the idea about we used to have in in, uh, Chancery Lane in London, you'd have an entire community of scriveners and copyists in Dickensian London taking one document and doing copies of it. So they must have thought at some point, oh my Lord, the photocopier. What is that going to mean for us? Well, what it means is it frees you up from doing a a laborious job, which doesn't have necessarily a lot of value. I think AI will do that for us. I think we'll have lots of ethical challenges because someone somewhere, possibly my great Glaswegian colleague, is thinking I could get rid of the internal communication department. We could just outsource this. How hard can this be? And that's been consistently the theme, which is if you're seen as a crafter and drafter, if you're proud of where you can put the apostrophes, you're in trouble. Because for years, white-collar jobs, if you stood between a customer and a computer, you were toast. And it, you know, every time I go to the airport and check in and find out that the, the, the people who used to be on the desk have gone, the same will be true of communicators. There will be a layer of communicators will either disappear or move up into high-value activity. And all the things we talked about, coaching, <laughs> articulating, measuring, tracking the audience, that's going to take time. And I think one of the things I'd like to come back to is time and capacity, because I think that's a real challenge for us, which is there's lots of great stuff we could be doing. There's lots of stuff that needs doing. We just haven't got the time to do it. If this frees us up from it, I think that'd be a fantastic development. 
having said that, I you know I wait to come back in two years' time to discover that I'm no longer needed and there's an AI here doing my job instead. And we'll all be robots here, Bill, as well. I can see Kat's desperate to jump in on this conversation. Go on, Kat. I was just thinking about it and thinking, you know, I know on this podcast we continually come back to the expanding opportunity for internal communication and what the next level of opportunity is for them to add strategic value to the organisations that they serve. And I absolutely see in the wake of digital communication a requirement actually for us as humans to re-establish kind of some sensible guardrails for good communication communication is getting eroded by over-reliance on digital technology and we're not going to stem that tide but we do have an opportunity to raise the communication bar and decide within our organizations what the minimum levels of human-to-human communication ought to be in order that everybody survives and thrives but there's another element to this whole AI piece which was brought to my attention earlier in the week and I think this is something that is very important for consideration. A lot of that low-level, cumbersome work that the likes of you or I would go, oh, my God, I don't really want to have to look at the 17th draft. That is the kind of work that entry-level graduates and school leavers would cut their teeth on and hone their craft on. And if we outsource it all to machines, where is the learning opportunity for the next generation of internal communicators to come up behind us? And that needs really careful consideration, I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because I think one of the things, you know, I I love the idea about strategy and planning, but it always comes down to good writing. I've always been surprised when, you know, you're supposed to be helping leaders switch from management speak to something and they're clearer. It's when you have communicators who can't do the drafting. Again, though, you do have to be able to write. You do have to be able to string the words together. I think that you're going, you're still going to have learning opportunities. You're going to have the learning is going to happen. It goes back to what I said about the apprentice system. You're going to have people coming in, but they're going to need to be alongside you, learning what you've done and picking up from that. And that goes back to our earlier conversation about having some kind of community I think you're you're right to say to uh, you know, a graduate, a first-time hire, how do you jump up to being a trusted advisor, if that's what your your ambition is? That, that's a bigger step than it has been in the past. And also, you know, there's slightly more fun in being with a group of people where you're writing, where you can get ideas, when you can get them to cast their eyes over what you're doing. It's more collegiate, it's more fun, it's more engagement. Well, I love your use of the word collegiate because it strikes me that that in and of itself, where entry level, you know, graduates and their seniors may well be learning in parallel together the new art of internal communication. Actually, that dissolves hierarchy in a really game changing way, because what many people have been saying is a bugbear about work is overtly hierarchical organizations and of course flatter structures allow organizations to move around you know to move and adapt more nimbly so I wonder 
if that is an opportunity where the learning is kind of is co- becomes co-learning regardless of seniority per se everybody is learning together in the work itself it's quite exciting well, actually, right. I mean, when I joined uh, Bursa Marstella, what really struck me is you had the generation above me who are experts in writing press releases and typing, you know, which were becoming less valuable as time went on. So you may have uh, seniors saying to their, their juniors, I can write this stuff. And uh, juniors say, yeah, so can the AI, mate. We may end up with heads of internal communication having a manager of AIs which is instead of having a content creation department, having an AI department that's doing it. And I think especially where you've got data that you're trying to keep people updated, I can see there's a place for automating that, as long as it doesn't go totally rogue on it. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's fascinating to talk. I mean, I mean, I cut my early career in trade publishing in the, you know, sitting in the editorial office with, and you had your editor, your, your feature writer, your news writer, your sub-editor, your art director, the production manager, and you've seen how those have all really changed. And But going back to what you're saying, and I think they're really big points. And when we look at the profession map, which is the competency framework that we put forward, you know, the, the pathway of skill development, the craft does start at that. The beginning part starts at what we call delivering, perhaps how we deliver will be more different. And it was certainly very different when I started, which was you had a month to print a magazine to then now where we have probably. And I would pick up on your point, Bill, which I think is the biggest challenge I hear in every day-to-day life of an internal communicator right now is time. Time and volume, time and volume. And that's not going anywhere. Uh, there's no signs of that slowing down. Can I ask you, because I think one of your questions was, was, okay, what's the one thing that internal communication we look at? If you were head of internal communication, Here's what you should, I think you should be looking at capacity because it's the price of success is more demand. And demand inside an organization is almost infinite. So the better you get, in a sense, the worse it gets, the pressure's higher. I think I, I was reading the Gallagher research, which I uh, said a couple of things which really struck me. One was, I think it said, and Lee Smith will correct me, that only 50% of communication was going through the internal communication department. And how come that was so low? And my view was, well, hang on a minute, where's the rest of it coming from? And it will be coming from change programs. It'll be coming from IT, the IT department that's, that's got a checkbook out and bought its own communicator. There'll be a lot of competing communicators competing for time and attention. So the question we should be asking is, okay, do we want more in? Why are they not coming to us? What value should we be adding to them? Are they, uh, in some cases, they're dodging us, which is <laughs> they've got their own campaign running and they don't want it subjected to scrutiny. But if we are going to have higher standards to start pulling this together, it's what we call air traffic control of in- internal communication, then you have to start saying, how are we going to use capacity more effectively? I think that certainly the people are thinking about the craft, but with that, the, the capacity is certainly the need. And, you know, you've talked a lot today, Bill, about this, you know, the world that we're now living in and from the issues of the complexities of the challenges, whether that's economic, labor, and the nature of working. 
the challenges of being a leader, whether that's a functional leader or a thought leader or a charismatic leader, and how that's really important in the world of trust, how actually voice and value and actually sensitivity is bigger and actually the voices are louder. So getting all that right is more important. Then there's the point of communities. And then there's the point around how we should nurture those relationships in our organizations because it's a combination of relationship and task. And actually, we need to invest in those equally or perhaps in a different bias. And with that, actually, with the issues of time and capacity, how can AI become perhaps a benefit to that, but also how we can argue for that? And I'm going to pick up maybe on my last question to summarize this. We need more capacity. You're absolutely right. So we need more resource. If you could sit in front of an internal communicator today that's sort of going, I want to go into my budget holder, whoever that might be, and argue for whether that's more investment, whether that's in support, human resource, functional resource, what's that key thing that they should be thinking about to make that argument for more capacity? Bill, thank you very much. (laughs) There's <laughs> been a, a huge amount of things that we've spoken about there. I can imagine that most internal communicators listening to this will think they've got a huge amount of issues to consider and things to try out. So an unfair question to finish with. You've talked about capacity, but what's the one thing that you think is most important for communicators to have on their to-do list, let's say, the coming year to equip them for this world you've described? Well, the flip side of, of capacity is capability. So I, I think all the chance we've talked about, it just put, keeps pushing all of us to pick up different new skills. And I think the lesson I think we should all take away from this is things that we were great at in the past are not going to be particularly valuable in the future. So we're going to have to keep moving up the, the ladder of roles to, the, to find a new one. Well, Bill, let's start that process right now. Thanks again. We'll see you in two years' time, we hope. <laughs> Talk to you then. Thanks for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast episode. If you have, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues on your preferred digital channels. Every recommendation helps us spread the word to build a better, more connected and inclusive future of work. Thanks for listening.